From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with pastors Mel Massingale and Todd Stanley. Hola. Hey. All right, so I want to start off by, uh, we just had a, a leadership night recently. It's, um, Mel, you called Lessons from a Rust Bucket. And Correct. It was, yeah. So it was, uh, the idea behind it was you had learned things, principles, uh, while working on your Jeep that scaled to leadership. Yeah. And one of them, which really struck me as uh, important and easy to tempting to, to violate is the principle of not starting too many projects at the same time. Yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about, like, you can tell the story of the, of what happened with your Jeep um, yeah. and kind of lay out that principle and then we'll kind of unpack it. I'm sure that's why most people are listening is they're just breathlessly anticipating yes. the off chance welcome, that I will welcome share. Welcome to Jeep Talk. That's right. <laughs> share a story about my 2001 Jeep Cherokee. So, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a project Jeep. Oh, wait, um, sorry. Talk is Jeep. That's the podcast. Oh, there you That's... go. <laughs> oh, oh, I can always count on you, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so I've just been replacing and restoring and doing all kinds of work. And, um, and as is, I mean, this happens in so many areas, whether it's our home renovations or whatever, uh, one project leads to another. And so as I started stacking these projects up, I realized like, oh, hey, you know, I probably want to replace uh, the water pump. Well, actually, it started with there was one inlet that um, was rusty that I thought, you know what, it's a $9 part. I'm going to replace that. And then I realized if I replace that, then the water pump, like they seize up and I probably need to replace the water pump. So I got a nice water pump. And then I thought, well, if I'm taking all that out, I might as well replace. And before you know it, I had um, like eight different components that Mm -hmm. uh, were were separate but integrated and together and connected that I could have done any one project and it would have been fine. But what I did is I did all of them simultaneously. Yeah. And then I had an issue. I had a, a cracked... I had a cracked housing for a thermostat and I didn't know it. And so when I put everything back together and it was completed and was finished and I started it up, I'm it's spewing coolant and I can't figure out where it's coming from. And so I'm looking and hours of searching and I can't find it. And, um, and so finally I have to take it all back apart and inspect. And it, it the, the problem was I would have been better off replacing one component at a time, testing it, mm-hmm. seeing how it worked. Uh, but I had so much work I had to do because I had done everything at once and then I didn't know where the problem was. Mm-hmm. I couldn't identify the issue. And also I'm not a mechanic. So yeah. um, so it it took me a lot of work to figure out, oh, I've got a cracked thermostat housing. That's all it is. Um, you know, it's a $10 part, but it cost me hours and hours and hours. And so the principle is, we can do the same thing in churches. Um, we can say, hey, we're going to make these changes. And then we make all these changes with all these moving parts. And there's a breakdown, but it's hard to figure out where the breakdown actually happened because now we've got all these new moving parts or people in new positions or new programs. Or, and it's easy to go, well, here's the problem. But is that actually the problem or is the problem somewhere else? Um, and so I think there's, I think there's a, a principle there yeah. that's true for us across the board. Yeah. 
so to some degree. Do you think that the impetus for taking on too many projects at the same time in that context was overestimation of your own abilities or was it? Yes, <laughs> that was part of it for sure. Yeah. Uh, it was simple enough. I, I see this on YouTube. These people are, these people are just as idiotic as I am. So I can surely do this. So that was definitely part of it. Um, part of it was my, my trust in the material as well. Like, Oh, Hey, it's not going to be cracked. It's going to be, you know, I, I had assurance in myself that, Hey, this is going to be good stuff. And it, it was, it was not, it was faulty. Um, and again, you don't know, cause I wasn't sure, am I just an idiot? Like, I don't know what I'm doing or, and come to find out it was like, Nope, it's faulty material. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So when you change a system, then you should, it's probably prudent to anticipate that any modification to a system is going to yield tenfold negative consequences that maybe you don't foresee coming. And so you might be able to move the needle a little bit in the positive, but every time you move the needle at all, you might uncover negative consequences, unforeseen negative consequences. Is that a safe ass assessment when it well, comes to churches? That's probably, that's probably an overstatement in my opinion, mm -hmm. because if that was, if that was the, the rule, we would never make any changes. Mm -hmm. We, it, and that, and honestly, that's probably what a lot of people do. They look at, they look at changes that way. It's going to yield negative consequences. So we won't make any changes. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, the, the net win, in spite of all the work on my Jeep, the net win was this is going to be healthier. It's going to work better. It's going to function better was worth all of the labor and all the heartache and all the struggles and frustration and all those yeah. kind of things. So yes, you've got to understand, hey, when you're making changes to your systems, when you are bringing new leaders in or implementing new new programs or departments or you know, vision, whatever it is, there are going to be problems you don't anticipate. And maybe it's because you're an idiot and you think you're smarter than you are. Or maybe it's because there's a broken system somewhere. There's a broken leader somewhere there's a broken whatever it might be and you've got to understand this might take longer than we think it will or this might mm -hmm. be have more heartache but you still have to say why did we start doing this in the first place well something was wrong and we were trying to make it better and that's got to be the motivation throughout it because if you stop whenever you have a problem mm -hmm. you, you're just going to quit you're never going to change you're never going to grow you're never going to move through that so yeah so we shouldn't be stultified by the anxiety of change and we should be willing to approach it, but we should try to approach it in a way that, um, is not taking off too much at the same time. Yeah. And it sounds like there's hope for pastors that have bit off too much Absolutely. at one time, because like you're like, what you're suggesting is that even in the context of your Jeep, yeah, you started too many projects at the same time, but it still ended up with a healthier outcome because you persisted yeah. even in the midst of the chaos. So if a pastor say, say come in and has changed the whole system and now he's living in chaos, it's not too late if he no. pushes forward to get to. No. And I think you can be really systematic about it and go back through and then do a hard analysis. Okay, is this working the way it's supposed to? Why is it not working the way it's supposed to? Or yes, it is absolutely doing exactly what I want it to do. Okay, well, let's move on to the next piece then. Well, what about this? And we have to be ruthless about that. And it's easy to do that in the context of something inanimate like a Jeep or an engine or a yeah. home renovation, but it's hard to do that with people because mm. we want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And we go, well, 
maybe they're not a great leader, but man, they're so nice. Mm-hmm. Or man, they're so they're here every weekend. They're so faithful. I just hate and and again, I keep drawing it back to the context of the Jeep. I don't care. Um, you know, I've got a a part that is not going anywhere. It's going to be there, but if it can't do what I need it to do in the engine, it's got to go uh-huh. because. I, I need the vehicle to be able to get me down the road, and no matter how pretty a piece is, if it is if it is flawed uh-huh. and it's going to cause me to be on the side of the road, then I don't need it in the engine. Right. I don't need it in the bay. I need it gone. And there are people on your team, maybe there are systems or programs that you're married to that you thought, okay, well, you know what? It's not that bad, but um, it's going to leave you on the side of the road. It's going to mm-hmm. keep you from getting to where... God has called you to go. And so in some ways you got to be ruthless about that and say, Hey, I love you, but you're probably shouldn't be teaching the Sunday school class anymore. Hey, I love you. You probably shouldn't be leading this ministry. Let me find you a place that's that you're going to be less frustrated, that I'm going to be less frustrated. It's going to help the organization. Those are hard conversations to have, but you got to be ruthless about it. So what makes those conversations hard? Would you say that it is, I guess it's a combination of both of these things, but which of these things is more potent? Let's ask. Um, is it the fear for the well-being of the person who you have to adjust, or is it a fear for admitting that you've made a mistake in your judgment? Ooh, I don't know. I think it's probably, it depends on the leader. Um, mm-hmm. Depends on their motivation, depends on their heart. But I think for a lot of leaders, it's the the, the latter. It's... yeah. I don't want to look bad. If if I change, if I make changes now, you know, I implemented this change. Now if we change again, I'm going to look like a fool. I'm, yeah. I'm, people are going to lose trust in me. So we're going to hold the course even if I know it's not the right course now. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting because so it's not so much the fear of being wrong, but it's the fear of being exposed as wrong right. and how that would damage your relational equity with the people you're trying to lead. Yeah, And that's actually a hard calculation <laughs> to make because you still have to lead them. And if they don't trust you as a leader. Yeah. And I think sometimes that is so subtle in our own hearts, we don't even recognize it. Yeah. I think we convince ourselves like, oh, I'm right about this. And even if even if the evidence is pointing to we are wrong. And again, in, in the context we're in, in churches, it's, you can't argue with God told me. And, and, and <laughs> yeah. in, in leadership positions, that's a lot of times what we do. Well, I feel like God told me this. And then your board can't go, no, he didn't. Look how badly we're failing because God told you, right? <laughs> um, and so we, we, we spiritualize it. And so it makes it even harder for us to be honest with us, ourselves about yeah. Where things are broken or where things aren't working or whatever it might be. Oh, yeah. Because if you imbue a misjudgment with a divine authority. Oh, yeah. And it's like even harder <laughs> to change. Yeah. Because then you have to question whether or not you're hearing God properly. Yep. <laughs> and so all of that gets factored in. And oh, my gosh. So that's difficult. Um, but I think we could say that that's necessary to ministry, that that's going to mm-hmm. happen to everyone who, who tries yep. pastoring. Yep, and yep, so yep. that's for sure. Yeah. There's no avoiding it. And so. Uh, stewarding yourself well and in preparing yourself to be able to have those conversations and make those decisions being steeped in principle so that you can do that is probably the course of action. Well, and I think you, good leaders have to have a, a balance between confidence and humility where they're confident enough. They can make decisions without second guessing everything, you know, they make a decision and they're not questioning their own decision for the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. 
but they also have to be humble enough where they make a decision and then they come back and go, no, that was a stupid decision. We need to change that. Or, hey, I was wrong about that. And that's hard. It's hard to balance those things because we tend to veer one direction or the other. But I think the best leaders are the ones that go, hey, we're doing this. This is the vision God's given us. And then to be able to come back and go, you know what? I was wrong. I missed it. Um, but that's okay. God's speaking to us now. Let's go. You know, yeah. we're going to change the gears. Yeah. And it's hard to live in that balance. Yeah, I think the, 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 the irony is that when leaders have the humility to admit when we're wrong, it actually instills greater mm-hmm. trust in our people, but our our knee jerk reaction is to think that it won't. Yeah, and of course, if a leader is consistently wrong, that's a problem, <laughs> right? Uh, but look how humble I am. I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> I'm wrong all the time. Yeah, <laughs> but if you know, if you've demonstrated, uh, you know a good track record as a leader mm-hmm. and have the humility to admit when you're wrong, man, that creates a great deal of trust in the people who you lead. But, but again, that's not our knee jerk reaction. Our knee jerk reaction is to go, Oh man, if they, if I admit that I screwed up, then they're not yeah. going to you know trust me. We that's, minimize. And yeah. yeah. So do you think that that instills a greater trust in the people you're leading because they're able to see that you are committed to the truth, even if the truth is not on your side and that a lot, that, provides a stable mm-hmm. objective third ground that's outside of both them and you that you you can meet them on and so if i obviously if the people you're leading are not pathological then they would be interested in the truth as well and so if they see you being willing to sacrifice yourself to the truth then that makes them trust you more because they trust the truth mm-hmm. is that kind of something like what's running in their minds yeah i mean i certainly think that's part of it um uh, you know um uh, Part of it's just the practical thing of, as a leader, me going, I know they can see this. Right. <laughs> right? They've got eyeballs. And yeah. So, and so if I just go, la, 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 it's not happening, <laughs> you know, uh, then, then that erodes trust. Yeah. But if I'm willing to go, hey, I see the same thing you see. Yeah. You know, not then then they go, okay, I'm not, I'm not crazy. Like, yeah. this yeah. really, this really does need to be fixed. And I think it also creates an environment where your team goes, okay, I can I can bring things up if if I don't feel like they're working, yeah. because my leaders aren't blind to this either. They mm-hmm. you know they're not blind to what's going on because they're so um, committed to this course of action because it was theirs that they're just have you know they've closed their eyes to what's not working, and so I think it's. You know, they're just practical reasons that it creates trust. Yeah, for sure. So there's this um, really stupid idea in the culture that hierarchy is inherently bad and that (laughs) it's oppressive and all of this. And I was thinking about this the other day, that the hierarchy of influence and why the hierarchy of influence is so crucial to the functional operation of a church. Now, tell me if you agree with this, and then I'll tell you why I think this is probably the case. Um. I don't think a church can function well unless there is a well-established hierarchy of influence. I think if there are like five different people who have equal influence over a congregation, that church is not going to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I think that is because sometimes an influential person has to be dismissed and that person can only be dismissed by someone who is of greater influence than them without like kind of weird issues happening. And so 
that's that's my thought behind why I think hierarchies of influence are important. But it, it goes to other things too, like making big decisions and things like that. If you have somebody who disagrees with mm-hmm. where the church should go and all this, like kind of like clear leadership. So what what is your assessment of hierarchies of influence and how do you steward that at Summit in particular? Um, I will say every time I've, usually with church plants, what we see is, and I don't mean usually with church plants, but where I see this is most prevalent is with church plants where they will have an idealistic view of co-pastoring and there might be a team two or three or four. I I saw a church one time that they had four and they were all going to be co-pastors. Well, what does that look like? And they were telling me about it and I just said, that's cool. I'm, and these guys were good friends. They were close. And I just said, I'm just telling you, whoever is the best communicator is going to end up being the leader mm-hmm. because that's the people, that's the person people will default to. And so just understand as you're moving into this that people are going to follow a person, not a group of people. It's mm-hmm. just not going to happen. And, uh, and it, it, it was, that's how it, was born out. I mean, that's exactly what yeah. played out in that situation. Uh, and I've seen it. I've seen it in other c- circumstances where co-pastors, we're going to pastor together. Uh, and it, it can work, I think. Uh, but I think that's the exception to the rule. Um, and so I think a, a hierarchy is important um, because honestly, there's there's a hierarchy in heaven. Um, we see we see triune God. But they're not equals. I mean, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, they defer to each other. They give glory to each other. But Jesus said repeatedly, hey, there's no one good but God. You know, God is the only one who's good. He keeps pointing back. And so even in heaven, there's a there's a hierarchy. And I think one of the reasons we recoil against this idea is because we've seen bad hierarchies. Yeah. And so we've seen... Um, We've seen it go bad. We've mm-hmm. seen corrupt leaders, and it causes to, to mistrust hierarchies. I had a bad experience in a church, so now I'm not going to trust my next church. Mm-hmm. And so we think the answer is the leadership structure, but I tell churches all the time, especially we were walking some United Methodist churches through the transition out of UMC into global or into independence, and that was one of the things they, they were asking. Well, we've been congregational with all these committees and all this stuff, should we be pastor led? And I said, well, that's, that's the way our church is structured, but the structure is less important than the people involved in the structure. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Congregational led church, in my opinion, is not the most biblical form of polity, but it can work if you've got the right people in place. Um, A solo pastor who's making decisions and supported by a board, I think that's probably wiser. I think that's more biblical. But that can go horribly wrong if you've got the right wrong people in place. If you got a bad pastor and a board that's complicit, then it can go bad really quick. So I think that the hierarchy and the structure is far less important than the people plugged into the structure. Yeah, and is that because the skill of communication is independent of ethical morals, like yeah. ethical guides? Yeah, like you can be really good at communicating yeah. and be a disaster of a human being, and yeah, so absolutely. but you'll still garner influence because mm-hmm. of the skill of communication. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's pretty interesting. Well, so speaking of communication and preaching in particular, um, this is a question I think is, um, 
could go several different ways, but we'll, we'll take it wherever it goes. So as a pastor, why do you think, do you think it's a bad idea to shy away from difficult topics on the platform? Why do you think it's a bad idea? Let's just start there and then we'll get into the second pieces. So yeah, to- I think we should shy away because people are going to leave your church and you don't want that. <laughs> you got to have people in your church. How, how right. are you going to get your bills paid? You, you got you to gotta get paid, Pastor. So first thing you need to do is figure out what the people need you to preach, and you just preach that. Just ask them. Take a poll and say, what would you like yeah. me to preach? Isn't it weird that something like that can be so self-evidently wrong that it has satirical comedy to it? Yeah. And yet, so many people get tempted into that stream. Yeah. yeah. Like, how does that happen? Well, um, I, I think the key to that is... Uh, and what was the exact phrasing of the question? So hard. Why, yeah, why is it bad to shy away from difficult topics? Difficult topics. So I think the definition of difficult topics would, I think how we define that would parse mm-hmm. out the answer. Yeah. So I think there are things that, that we look at and we go, hey, this is a hard topic, you know, that our people may push back on a little bit, but it's biblical, so we're going to approach it, that other churches would look at and go, that's not a hard topic. This is a hard topic for us. So mm-hmm. there's things political we don't talk about. We, I would call that a hard topic. Mm-hmm. But for some churches, they embrace that stuff. Mm-hmm. They they just, you know, they bring in Republican candidates and yeah. let them preach on a weekend. And, you know, like that's what they do. So they look at us at our church and they would go, oh, they're not preaching the whole gospel. Well, our standard for what is a hard topic is a little different, though. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah. So the, the churches that are not... Um, obviously political, I would say, are, if they're healthy, what they're doing is they're recognizing that principles are upstream from politics. Mm -hmm. And so if they teach principles, those things should inform politics. And so they don't need to directly speak to the politics because the principles subsume that. Um, And I think that that's what happens generally. It's just that some people aren't like, I don't want to say they're not sophisticated enough, but I just said it. So maybe they're not paying attention enough to understand that the principles are informing the politics. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's part of it. Todd, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, so I think, think honestly, it's not necessarily that the topics are hard. Mm -hmm. It's that they are Mm countercultural, and we are sometimes afraid to buck culture because we know that the people in our congregation are influenced deeply by their culture yeah Mm -hmm. uh and well and and so sometimes it's that sometimes it's that honestly that we as pastors have been deeply influenced by our culture Mm -hmm. and and we can have a difficult time wrestling with the text and so you know whether we want to admit that or not, that's a reality as yeah. well. So sometimes it's just that, oh, I don't want to talk about that because deep down I really don't agree with that. Yeah. You know, and so Ooh, that's a hard. whole yeah. other, you know, can of worms to open. Yeah, so there's a... <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> so there's a sense then that if Scripture teaches a certain thing and you don't really agree with it, it could be the case that you don't... under. It's likely the case that you don't understand it and you don't have the faith based presupposition of childlike obedience to God to inform your reading of the scripture. It's something Mm -hmm. like that. Like it's, 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 it's kind of like, if I don't, if I'm not able to understand and parse out why such Mm -hmm. a thing is good, then I can't say that it's good. Mm -hmm. I can't believe that it's good. And I think that if you try to approach the Bible that way, you will fail. Um, It's (laughs) just, it's just too difficult. It's too hard to, to get to those understandings. You can get to them, I think, if you work 
long and arduously mm-hmm. for it, but it's not self-evident in the text many times. And if you just put down the Bible at the point you come to something like that, you'll never finish it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, I think we feel like clergy or pastors or leaders are immune from the same thing our people deal with because our people, the, the people in my church that are living together who know what the Bible says but still will live together in spite of that, they're not evil, but they they are choosing a view of Scripture as it applies to their life in a way that is convenient for them. And pastors aren't immune to that. Um, pastors can do the exact same thing where we choose to interpret Scripture in such a way that it makes my life a little easier or it keeps me from having to confront some some things in my own life or whatever it might be. And so if we're not careful, we can do the exact same thing because it's a human condition. It's not a it's yeah. not a world condition. You know, people outside the church, they deal with this, but not us. But we deal with it too. Yeah. So that's why, you know, what Todd was saying is we got to wrestle with this stuff and go, mm-hmm. ooh, why is this painful? Why is this hard for me to preach? Is it because there's something in me that that needs to be reconciled to Scripture or, you know, whatever it might be? But that's that's – it's way easier for us to preach sermons than it is for us to live them out. Yeah. And that's where we have to live them out and go, okay, what do I really believe in this? This strikes me as a familiarity with God problem. Um, like, So, for instance, when you're around people who you are very intimately familiar with, it seems to me that you are less judicious with your speech. Mm-hmm. You're you're more mm-hmm. likely to yeah. say things that you probably they're probably yeah. not uh, becoming a, uh-huh. an honorable person. That's weird that that happens. Um, one, because those people are the most important people in your life mm-hmm. and, and yet you're allowing them to see this part of yourself. Mm-hmm. But I think you, I think it happens because that intimacy also begets a kind of trust that even if I say or do something like this, they're not going to stop loving me. Right. And when people start to get there with God, I think that it's easy to transgress his commandments without thinking twice about it. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with that is I think we really need to be there with God. Mm-hmm. So it's ends up you end yeah. up with this weird tension that. Well, it's uh, and this goes back to what you're saying. Um, the the e- the people that it's easiest to, from a pastoral perspective, the people that it's easiest for me to mis- mistreat are the people in my home. Um, and there are things, especially in my past, that I would say to the people in my home, um, or I would react away to them that I would never react to somebody in the church. And that's a that's a personal shortcoming on my part because I take advantage of them for that same reason. Well, I know they've got to love me, so they'll give me grace, so I can say mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And that's that's where we get. I mean, and that's an that is that is an improper way to relate to the people in my home. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, I was gonna use the word abuse. I don't think it's crosses that line that threshold, mm-hmm. but I'm still taking advantage of our Maybe relationship. Maybe not for you. But certainly for some people it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And that that is, to Todd's point, I think that that mentality yeah. ends up being the birthplace of abuse for deeply pathological people, yeah. for sure. Well, and even that we carry that into our relationship with God. And to me, that is, that's what Paul talks about when he talks about uh, presuming upon the grace of God. Um, well, I can do whatever I want. God's got to forgive me. God's all loving, so he's got to forgive me. And so now I'm going to interact mm-hmm. with God in such a way 
that honestly we wouldn't interact with normal people with humans yeah, yeah. we treat god in a way that we wouldn't treat humans and we apply the same standard i think it's really yeah. dangerous and it's it should be a warning sign for our own hearts that we oh, know, yeah. yeah something's wrong here. we have any well, well i would i would actually argue you know you said you, you said you know familiarity with God, I would actually argue that it's a lack of familiarity yeah. with God. Yeah. Mm, interesting. It's, it's taking on, uh, it's, it's a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's a, an appearance of familiarity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's actually a lack of intimacy, Yeah. right? It's a lack of familiarity with God because when we approach God, those who get near to God Right. If you look at it in the scriptures, mm-hmm. those who get near to God uh, respond in fear and awe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Those who are truly familiar with God, you don't you don't get less respect for God the closer you get. You garner more. Right. You don't become less afraid. Right. You don't have less. Uh, awe and wonder at who God is. You don't see His holiness as less the closer you get. You see it as more. Our response is, I mean, you know, Isaiah goes, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, God told Moses, you know, I I can only let you see the back side, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you saw the full measure of my holiness, it would consume you, right? We see the Apostle Paul, as, as he grows in his, in his ministry and toward the end of his life, rather, you know, he starts out referring to himself as the least of the saints, and, and then he, he ends his, like, in the latter parts of his ministry, he says, I am the chief of sinners, right? The progression of mm-hmm. holiness and the progression yeah. of familiarity with God is one of recognizing just how holy and and awesome and beautiful he is yeah. and just that our level of reverence grows not yeah. diminishes mm-hmm. as we become more familiar with him and so if we find ourselves in a place where we are casual about god's grace and presuming yeah. on yeah. god's grace as the way paul said it's not because we've become too familiar with god it's because we've not drawn close enough yeah, yeah. I, I love the the delineation between familiarity and intimacy. I think that makes a ton of sense because even, even in our church, I'll have people who will, uh, who are familiar with me, but they don't really know me. Mm-hmm. And I'll have people mm-hmm. that'll joke with me about things. And it's like, it's not inappropriate, like, um, like in a sinful kind of way, but they'll joke with me about things that I'll go, I don't know if you have the right to joke with me about that. Like yeah. we're not that close. Yeah. You know, but they're familiar or with even me. If, even if you really knew me, you would know that's not funny. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but they might say the exact same thing that somebody who is actually intimately in, intimate with me would say that I would go, okay, you have the right to say that. Like we can joke about yeah. this because like, you know, my first thought is like my weight. Um, somebody who I don't know, if they make a comment about my weight, I might be like, hey, wait a second. I don't know that you really have the right to say that. We don't have that intimacy level for you to approach me this mm-hmm. way. Uh, you haven't earned that uh, versus somebody that I'm really close with. They can make a joke about my weight and I know the intent behind it, I know the heart behind it, and I know mm-hmm. all those things. I We can laugh about it. And so I think... I think there are people that are far too familiar with God and not intimate enough with God. Yeah. So that's the intent piece is super interesting here because I would say that a person who's transgressing the commandments of God and is doing it in a way that they don't feel particularly convicted by it, they would appeal to their intent. 
Uh they would say something like, well, God knows that I mean well. Right. God knows my heart. Yeah. And that, like Todd, I think that what you're saying is spot on with this this idea of this this facsimile of familiarity and actually being distance. Would would you guys agree that that's a minority teaching in Western Protestant evangelicalism, though, when it comes to the familiarity with God? I, I don't hear that very often. You know, I don't hear the... I don't hear us inviting people, not us as summit, but Mm -hmm. the the church. I don't hear us inviting people into closeness with God in such a way that they need an angel to place a burning coal on their lips because Mm -hmm. they're so unworthy of being in front of them as the prophet Isaiah. Yeah. Um, That seems to be more rare than the other, than the the false familiarity. I think it is the, the root of all sin is for us to create God in our image, right? To take for ourselves glory that belongs only to God or to take self-determination, right? If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that's the thing that the serpent comes and says to Eve. is like, did God really say, you know, you can eat this fruit, you'll be like God, mm-hmm. you know? And so self-determination and creating a God in our image is the root of all sin, and our, you know, to borrow from, uh, I think it was John Calvin, our hearts are idle factories, mm-hmm. right? And so, the 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 temptation that we have to resist at all at all points is to create a God that that we are familiar with, yeah, right? That looks like us, that thinks like us. Mm-hmm. Anytime I say, well, you know, well, God knows my intent. What I'm saying is, I get to self determine, mm-hmm. yeah. That the command of God is not the 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 you know the ultimate measure yeah. that it's me, and 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 it's idolatry. It's idolatry, yeah. and we all we all do it. And yeah. we, you know, God looks like me, thinks like me, and justifies the things I'm willing to justify. And hundred percent. So if you have any illusions about the goodness of people, we are the kinds of creatures who accept the gift of faith and use faith to facilitate sin. <laughs> That's what it sounds like <laughs> yeah. to me. <laughs> so that's that's pretty wild. Um, I, I think there's something, I think there's something practical about that as well. Um, you know, not so far as what Todd was talking about, but I think even in churches, it's easy for us to uh, we lower the standards. Um, like, hey, here's how easy it is to know God, and we got to be careful that we don't just make it about. Hey, just say these words when right. I say these words, and then everything's good. You're fine. Um, but helping people understand that um, you know salvation is a free gift, but it's also a relationship that we walk in. That it's not just about a moment of you know salvation, but hey, there's more to this than just saying a prayer one time. And um, you know, I'm I, I'm so appreciative of Billy Graham and the work he did, but uh, I feel like at times we have taken a model like that, you know, because he would come into a city and, you know, go out of a city and have crusades and they were great. And millions of people came to faith through the work of Billy Billy Graham. But I think at, at times we think, oh, this is what we do. This is, you know, so we what we do unintentionally is we lower the standard from, mm-hmm. from intimacy to familiarity where mm-hmm. we say, oh, hey, um, well, you know, you know, God, come on, you know him at but yeah. we don't know him. We you make know, the, the finish line rather than the starting point. Right. Yeah. And, so and so that, I think that's a danger that we 
we walk in uh, unintentionally. I don't think pastors are doing it from a nefarious point of view, but I think we have we have changed we have changed what the standard is for walking with Christ. Yeah. So with the the, the Billy Graham piece, it seems to me that there's a mistake insofar as there is a there's a persuasion that the role of the evangelist is ends up being the same as the role of pastor. Mm-hmm. And those are, those are distinct, right? Because mm-hmm. like Billy Graham was tremendously successful as an evangelist, mm-hmm. but if there are not pastors coming in, mm-hmm. in his wake and helping steward the newfound faith of the people who would attend right. his crusades. And I think in, in many cases there probably were, but there were still, there's still like to your point now, like, a lot of people, their only interaction with Billy Graham was like on YouTube or watching TV mm-hmm. or whatever. And so they may have had, they've come away with that, with the sense of, okay, this is what pastoring looks like, or this is what being yeah. pastored looks like. Well, and I, I think it was less about the, what I was saying was less about the people who attended or even Billy Graham himself. But I think that models what churches use yeah. where, um, and from our perspective, it's disconnected from discipleship and from mm-hmm. growth and from intimacy where it's just like, okay, you sign up here, let me tell you about who Jesus is, and then we'll get you going. You know, it's like more akin to selling a timeshare than it is, you know, starting a a new relationship, so. So I'm certain that both of you have experienced this. Um, When you speak about things like the, from a platform, like the strict holiness of God or the devastating consequences of sin, it seems to me that Okay, there are two different kinds of, at- of attention that a congregation can be paying you. They can be paying you the kind of attention like when your jokes are really hitting and like the, mm-hmm. the, the, and, and like that's not trivial, by the way. Yeah. I don't think that that's trivial. I think that there's a charm that helps uh, put the pill in the peanut butter, so mm-hmm. to speak, and th- helps people uh, adopt principles that they might otherwise not want to right. yeah. even pay attention to receive. That's one form of attention. And then another form of attention is when you're speaking about these things like the strict holiness of God or the consequences of sin, there's like a dead silence that comes over the room. Um, what what do you think is happening in that moment? And um, why is it that people go into that kind of space of like, uh-oh, like, oh, this is... And do you deploy that? often when you preach or is that something that you're careful with is it like one of those things that's so potent that too much of it um could end up having a negative effect what where where do you land on all of that do you even agree with it i definitely agree that when when we talk about the holiness of god uh that that there is a there's a a kind of hush, a kind of quiet that that can come into a room in response to that. Um, I don't know, man. Like what? Well, so here's an example. I can. I'll run this example. It might help clarify the question. I was riding in a vehicle with several of our pastors when we were on staff retreat um, recently, and I started telling them about Unit Seven Thirty One, which is a um, was a biological engineering completely illegal uh, experimental facility that the Japanese were running underground during World War II. And it's absolutely horrifying. I won't even share the details on the podcast. Like you can look it up if you want to disturb yourself. Um, But as I was talking to them about that, and then I ended up stopping myself because no one was giving any feet. Like they were just like, I couldn't tell if they thought I was crazy or like, (laughs) like why would he be saying this? They did. They told me later. 
yeah, they did. I didn't even know what the conversation was. They were like, Pastor, don't make me ride with him. Uh, <laughs> All right, whatever. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, I know about this process yeah. that runs in people. And still I have doubt whenever I bring up something like that. Yeah. But here's the thing. I'm not making that up. That yeah. actually happened. Mm-hmm. And things that actually happened are the, the ground on which pastors need to be working, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't just ignore this kind of stuff. But it casts a kind of silence over people. Mm-hmm. And that silence is intimidating, I think, for the person who's speaking. And and you don't know where people are going to land. Like, like I've actually had a, I had a woman come up say, once and say, hey, um, I don't ever want to hear you speak about those things again. Oh, nice. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet of you. But like, yeah. And I get what she's saying, but what she's communicating to me is, in my understanding of that moment, is I live in this bubble and I don't want you to pop it. Yeah. I don't want that to happen. Um, I don't know if there's a question in that, but it's just, it's hard. I think that, I think that for speakers, it can be hard to address things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, because they don't know what people are thinking in that moment because it goes quiet. Well, hmm. okay, so I've got a, a couple of thoughts. The first is this. Um, I think if if I'm presenting the gospel, it is my responsibility to use every tool available mm-hmm. um, in public speaking to communicate the gospel as clearly and as effectively as I possibly can. And there are there are strategies you can use when public speaking that will help you communicate more efficiently and more clearly. Right. Um, so it's wrong for us to ignore those things. And some of those are things like um, pausing for an effect or using humor to illustrate a point or whatever it might be. So I think it's wrong. It's wrong for us to have an approach where you go, well, I'm just going to read the word of God and that's all it is, you know, like, okay, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But, um, but your job is to help people hear the word and understand the word and apply the word to their lives. So I think it's, I think it's wrong for us to ignore those things, but I think we can also lean too far into them where it just becomes a skill and mm-hmm. we ignore the anointing and we ignore, ignore the spirit at work and those kind of things. And the church I came from in Oklahoma, they were very loud, very responsive, very engaged uh, vocally with your sermon, with your message, things like that. So when I first came to, to Pennsylvania, I told Kim, I said, I think they hate my guts. I'm not really sure because I was so dependent on the response from the room that I found myself at times playing toward it or trying to like that's how I measured a win was how engaged people were verbally with me or how much they laughed or how many good sermon pastors I heard after the after the message. And so what I had to do is be mature enough to go, hey. I'm not going to rely on that stuff. I'm going to do exactly what God tells me to do. I'm going to be mm-hmm, as faithful yeah. to the word and to the text as I possibly can be. Um, I'm not going to preach things that just make me look smart or make me look slick. I'm going to mm-hmm. preach what the word of God says. And my job is to make him look good and not me look good. And then who cares if people like it or not? And that kind of goes yeah. back to even the hard, you know, the hard stuff earlier. Like hey, if we just endeavor to say, I'm going to preach the truth and I'm going to use every skill that I possibly can. And if I need to learn some communication skills to preach better, I'm going to do it. But I'm going to employ every skill I can, but I'm going to rely on the Holy Spirit to do the work. And in those moments where, because I'm not afraid of those moments, I, I like to lean into those. But I mm-hmm. think 
I think if I rely on those moments, yeah. then it divorces it divorces a message from the Holy Spirit. It's just a TED Talk is all it is. It's a spiritual TED Talk. And so I think relying on the Holy Spirit to deliver those moments and not relying on my skill set to deliver those moments right. is dramatically different. Yeah, because if you're not careful, then feedback can become the mechanism that mm-hmm. determines your purchase on truth yeah. rather than the scripture itself. And so then you, 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 you will end up filtering what you say. Because there's certain things, like the, the fact that Jesus was crucified in front of his mother is something yeah. that like people don't talk about very <laughs> right. often. Like that's right. a hard yeah. thing to think about. Yeah. Another thing, another one, um, this was an idea that it took like five years for me to really stumble on this. But if you hear the commandments of God and, and say he is your Lord mm-hmm. and you don't, and you are not in submission to him, you mm-hmm. are indistinct from the Roman soldiers who put the purple cloth on him in the crown of thorns. Mm-hmm. They did the same thing. Mm-hmm. They mocked him as their Lord. Yeah. That's scary to think about. Like yeah. that's the fact that we can be in that company. Because we read about those guys and we think, oh, I'm so glad that I'm not them. I don't mm-hmm. like what's coming for those guys. Right. But how is that different than what we're doing if we're not in actual submission and yet we pay lip service to God? That's the same thing as yeah. what they did. That's that's yeah. exactly what they did. Um anyway, so yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> So God is holy and he is near. And that should be both terrifying to us and infinitely comforting, mm-hmm. but only in light of Jesus. Yeah. And that's what we have to help people to see. And I think that the, terif- the, the terror is what makes the room be silent. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And we need that because we need that recognition of our sin and our unholiness and our need for God. But if we leave people there, then we miss the gospel. And so I think those moments are only effective in as much as we then exalt the glory of the cross and the glory of Jesus and then offer the comfort that only comes mm-hmm. through surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a super important point, and they play they play together, like right. So the mm-hmm. the exaltation of God and the the glory of the gospel and the the peace that comes with it comes in light of the darkness of the crucifixion. Yeah. When we really look at it for what it is, then we can really see the gospel for what it is. And if we pull away from either of those things, like if you don't if you don't present the gospel and all you present is the bad, then you crush people and they become cynical and resentful yeah. and Legalistic demoralized and, and legal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yesterday, um, yesterday I was in a conversation with Colin McKnight as our Blairsville campus pastor, and we were talking about um, we were talking about conversations in groups and how there are people that hate silences, and so they'll fill the space, you know, like because he was in a group with some people, and somebody said, "Hey, does anybody want to lead some prayer?" and didn't even give people a chance to respond. Like anybody? Nope. Okay. Well, I'll just do it, and. We tend to we tend to do that a lot of times if we're uncomfortable yeah. and pastors and and from a practical perspective I think there's something really powerful about allowing space for the Holy Spirit to work independently without my words like give a moment for a for a you know for a, a point to land or for a s- scripture to land or for the impact of it to kind of set in 
in people. I think there's something really powerful about that, but sometimes our insecurity gets in the way and we don't allow that to happen. And so I think, you know, in light of what Todd is saying, I think it is really important for us to have some moments where we let the Holy Spirit work without us, where we can say, okay, hey, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit speak to our people in this, in this moment. Maybe it's five seconds. Uh, but when you're standing on a platform preaching, five seconds it's, feels like a really <laughs> long time. Um, yeah. But I think I think we don't give the Holy Spirit enough credit to do the work that he really wants to do. We think he's dependent on us, and he's really not. Yeah, so this is um, – we've, we've uh, plumbed the depths of useful abstractions, and I think that uh, those are all very good. I want to end this on something of a practical note. And so what I want to talk briefly about is um, the value of pastoring your teams. So this would apply in particular to like medium-sized churches and maybe large-sized churches. Maybe it applies to smaller churches too. Um, I just, it'd be harder to see how. Um, The idea of pastoring your teams, right? So I'm over the production team at Summit. And so you've been telling me, Mel, from like the first time you hired me that I need to pastor my team. Mm -hmm. And whenever we, we had a Christmas party the other night, um, that Todd had organized, I think Todd, you organized it, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the worship team and the production team were both there. And it was kind of like a, an eye opening visual moment because I could see all the people. Um, and in a church of our size, um, which is probably like a medium sized church, um, I don't ever see those people together at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like I see them when they're serving or maybe when they're attending, they're, they're kind of, in, I don't ever see them in the same room for the most part, Mm -hmm. but seeing them in the same room, I was able to see, okay, there's like 50, 60, 70 people in here, which Mm -hmm. just those teams is like the size of a small church. Sure. And those are people, um, like Todd was saying earlier this morning, those are people who need pastoral work. Um, because much of the time they are part of the ministry Mm -hmm. and they are part of the worship experience and they're part of the pastoral work. And so they're not getting as much pastoral work just through the the context of the weekend service. And arguably, especially in the worship, uh, for those who are worship leaders, they might need more pastoral work than those who are in the background because they have a higher degree of responsibility on their shoulders. Mm -hmm. So can we talk a little bit about pastoring your team and how that might look if it's being done in a healthy way and how that's good for the church overall? Yeah, well, you know, I think you and I were kind of talking about this earlier, and one of the things that I brought up was that, you know, the weekend comes with alarming regularity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, it's bearing down on you all the time. Yeah, yeah. And so it's really easy to um, to be stuck under and and to labor under the tyranny of the immediate, mm-hmm. and you know the the. Sunday's coming, so we've got, we got to be ready. We got to have a worship set that's ready. We have production stuff that needs to be done. We've got to have these teams filled. We got to have these roles done, and you know, like, and it's easy. It's really easy to let that be the thing that that drives and consumes our our energy and our activity. And um, planning center is a great tool, but when you're looking at planning center and you just see yellows. Or, yeah. It's mm-hmm. a horrible taskmaster. As yeah, well. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think it's easy to fall into that. Right. I'm just scheduling people. I'm just trying to get people filled, filled in these slots. Right. Yeah. And when, when we allow that to become the thing that we're focused on and, and certainly it, we have to give attention to it. The mm-hmm. weekend comes 
every seven days, right? So we have to give attention to it. But we can do that at the expense of the investment in the people from a relational standpoint and from a pastoral standpoint. It's really easy. And honestly, especially when you have a team that's functioning well, mm-hmm. like, you know, and it, it's easy to to neglect asking them how they're doing. Mm-hmm. Because, man, if they're showing up every weekend and they're serving, they must be doing great. Yeah, and, I, and let me let me clarify this too. And what you're talking about is not the how you doing when you see yeah. them. It is the it is the face to face, eyeball to eyeball where mm-hmm. you go. How are you doing? Like, how's your heart doing? Yeah, and how's your family? Are you are you doing all right? Right. That's a that is a different question. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know when so with worship team and production team in particular, because you and I both work in those arenas. Uh, they are serving during the weekend service, right? And so uh, that provides even less opportunity during those times to engage them in a deep level, which means it takes an, an, a level of intentionality outside mm-hmm. of the weekend to really develop relationship, to really, uh, you know, uh, know what's going on in their families and in their lives. To have the 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 time and the space available to 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 truly get to know them, to truly invest relationally in them, to have the the time and the space to 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 talk about the scriptures together. To you know, I mean, all of that has to happen outside the context of the weekend. And what we tend to do is see the weekend as this is our ministry. Mm-hmm. It's like no, yeah, no. Uh, it is it is certainly a component, right? Mm-hmm. It's the ministry of the church. The ministry, you know, we're ministering to people, uh, but but when the team is working to minister and serve the people, they're not getting served, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And our role as leaders, man. I, Wow, I didn't know I was going to get emotional about this today. But I mean, I was talking with the team at the party. Like, our great privilege is to get to serve. And that has to start with us as the leaders of those teams. Mm -hmm. Like, my job is to serve this team. And if the only time I am interacting with them is when they are there to serve the needs of the people, mm-hmm. I am not serving them. They're serving yeah. me, yeah. Mm-hmm. right? Because I have a I have a need that for every weekend, right? I, I need to field a team. I need to to have all these spots filled. I need to have singers. I need to have a band. I need to have you know. On the weekend, they're serving me as their leader. Mm-hmm. So when am I serving them? Yeah. And, you know, and so if I am not looking for and creating space and opportunities for me to serve them, there are two things that are happening there. Number one, I am failing to invest in them as a leader. And number two, my heart as a leader will grow more and more prideful because we love to be served. Mm-hmm. And so if I am not intentionally serving them, then I am I am feeding my own ego and my own pride, and I'm look. God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes yeah. the proud. I am mm-hmm. going to find myself in a place at some point where God goes, "That's enough." Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there was one moment in in particular from the uh, the Christmas party, and it was it struck me as so unusual because we've share we share exhortations like this all the time. Um, and but like you had read a passage from Philippians about um, counting others as more important than yourselves and, and loving people and taking on the character of Christ as we you know move about our day and and our work in the ministry um, and serve. And I was watching them and it looked to me like something that they hadn't had, like because of the context, because of the setting, because everybody was there together, all of that. And the two teams were both there. It seemed to me like it was definitely in the running for one of the most important five to seven minutes that, that those teams have heard all year. And it's because they, they were receiving something that they had not received in a, in a long time. Um, and and that, when I saw that, I was like, okay, that's what Mel's talking about when he says pass to your team. Mm-hmm. Now I get it. Now now it's making more sense. Um, but it's weird how when you just look at that in the theoretical and you don't actually get the people together and mm-hmm. see that happen, it's mm-hmm. harder to see. But in that moment, it was extremely self-evident. And man, everybody just, like the way they received that, that word and that scripture was... Um, unlike anything that I think I've seen uh, in a context of just the, the the teams, you know, in the in the, the people who serve here at the, at the church together. Um, I, I thought that was really interesting. It really piqued my interest, like how, how that worked. Um, well, when we talk about pastoring too, um, and Todd is talking about this, like pastoring doesn't happen from the platform. Uh, pastoring happens in the lobby or over coffee or... Uh, sitting in someone's living room or whatever it might be. Um, the most impactful times of ministry that I've had since I've been at Summit were not on the platform in the auditorium. Yeah. It was um, standing in the hospital room with a family whose parent is dying or uh, comforting a, a grieving family as they've discovered their their child has passed away or you know those are the those are the pastoral moments that people remember that when they think of a pastor those are the things they associate it with yeah. and so it's easy to say hey pastor your teams and think oh well I'm going to do a bible study with them mm-hmm. or but it really is that's a component of it maybe but really I think it is so much more about just caring for them and leading them and talking with them and, and not just training them to be better at their jobs, you know, what they do right. for the church, but helping them develop in such a way that um, that they are growing in their faith, that they are becoming who God wants them to be, even if it's not necessarily beneficial for the role we have them in at our church. Uh, that's shepherding. That's pastoring. And it's so easy, like you were saying, to get hung up in, well, I'm just going to schedule people and, well, if they can't cut it, then they're out of here and... But man, I think when we pastor people, I think a, a tangible benefit of that, even if you if even if you don't believe in pastoring your teams, I think a tangible benefit is your teams are going to have more buy-in because they felt loved and mm-hmm. cared for and they feel valued when you know their kids' names and you can ask them, "Hey, I, uh, how was the how, how was their basketball tournament?" or you know they went on vacation yeah. and "Hey, how was your trip to the beach?" Just little things like that are going to help buy-in from your team because they know, oh, the, my leader cares about me. Um, and it's not just senior pastor. Every person in the church is a pastor. Uh, Michael's, a, you're a pastor whether you have the title or not. You're pastoring your team. And yeah. so I think it's just, 
it comes back to the heart of Christ in us saying, hey, it's not about me. It's about you. I want to help you. I want to serve you. I want to bless you. And it's easy to get out of that. And it goes back to some of the hierarchy thing. Well, I'm the boss. You guys are here for me. And it's like, nope, nope, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, the temptation for leaders who seem to fail to do this, I think it's, and this could be an absolute cautionary tale for pastors who are trying to figure out why, like they might be hearing this and and they might be thinking, well, if I do this, I can't hit my standards. I can't Mm -hmm. meet my standards. So it's a non-starter like that, that. That might be how they're hearing what we're saying. And I think that if they hear it that way, I think the problem is because they've confused a commitment to excellence with a commitment to an ever-expanding, ever-increasing form of excellence that is born of a desire to be the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Those are not the same things. I don't, I don't think those are the same things. But, but I think that... I don't think those are even close to the same things. But I think that one can very easily lead into another for a leader. Um, and you know, there's all kinds of reasons for that that we don't need to get into. But as we just close here, do you think that that's the the rub? Do you think that's why that happens? Like that the people, like they want to be excellent, but maybe they don't just want to be excellent. They want to be the best, the best in the world. And so they compare themselves to Elevation and Hillsong and they think, oh, well, I want to be like them or better than them. And that's not the same as I, trying I think, to be excellent. I think it can be. I think that can be the motivation for a certain personality type or mm-hmm. mindset. But I think more often than not, I think it's, it's hard to pastor our people. It's easier just to treat them as cogs in a wheel and plug them in and have them do their jobs and not. It, it's hard to shepherd people because very rarely do people need shepherded de- between nine and five. <laughs> yeah, you know, like that's not when they need pastored. A lot of times it's at seven o'clock or at two a.m. or you know, and so it is real hard to pastor people. It's way easier to be their manager or their boss or whatever. So, yeah, I do think that's probably the case to some degree. But I think more often than not, it's just it's really hard to take a step from being a manager to a pastor. Um, and I think most of us just don't want to put in the work yeah. to do that. Look, I mean, I think I think Hollywood has demonstrated that you can put on a really great show with unhealthy people. <laughs> Yeah, 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 right. That's true. So churches, so, churches have yeah. demonstrated so, that. So, yeah, so having a so having a good show on the weekend, yeah, is not a measure of church health. Yeah, it's not a measure of how effectively you're pastoring your people. But we default to that. What we what we what we do is we go, hey, look how great things are going on the weekend. Yeah, we're doing a great job. Look, we're pastoring these people. Like you're aiming at the wrong thing, my man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, and there's, and look, there's nothing wrong with an attractive service on the weekends. Mm-hmm. We do, we we do an excellent job at Summit of having a compelling presentation every week, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But that has to be secondary, mm-hmm. and yeah. if it if it's not, then we're we're aiming at the wrong target, and and we can have a whole bunch of people who not who who think they're okay, but aren't being conformed to the image of Christ. You, you mean they're they're familiar with God, but they're not intimate with God? Maybe so. Yeah. Just trying a, to tie that in. That's a great way to put a bow on it. So thank you guys for listening. I uh, hope it's been valuable, uh, as valuable to you guys as it's been for me. And so uh, Mel, Todd, thanks for doing this. Thank you. And um, thank you. everybody who's listening, uh, we'll see you in the next episode. 
If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.